Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode number 27 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. Today, we're going to build on a lot of the material that we've been covering since episode 10. We're going to combine what we now know about mortgage lending with what we've most recently been covering, which are investment funds. So the topic of today's discussion is investment funds that invest in mortgages, also known as mortgage funds. Please take a quick moment to tap subscribe. We are on an ever-growing list of podcast platforms, including iTunes and Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Overcast, CastBox, Player FM, Podcast Addict, and many, many more. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the Income Investing Podcast. This is the only show on planet Earth, and perhaps in the entire universe, that concentrates exclusively on the vast world of income-producing investments. We've got a pretty broad range of listeners, from experienced investors to people who only just discovered the power of passive income and are now looking to expand their knowledge. My name is Alexis Asadi. I'm the host of this show, and I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur. I've been investing for income since 2011, and I've dabbled in almost anything that can generate revenue. However, I found my niche in mortgage lending, and I mainly provide funding to other entrepreneurs and real estate developers. So for obvious reasons, I've been pretty excited to record this episode in particular. Also, I just want to quickly bring your attention to an article that I revamped last Thursday. In February of 2015, I wrote a blog post on my website, alexisasadi.net, called 17 Examples of Income-Producing Assets You Can Invest In. It's been viewed hundreds of thousands of times over the past few years, but it had become a little bit outdated. So I spent until four in the morning last Thursday rewriting it. It's now updated for 2018 and beyond. The article lists and describes income-producing assets that I think you might find interesting, and it also outlines their availability and risk profiles. You can find it online just by typing the phrase income-producing assets into Google. It should pop up somewhere on the front page, hopefully right at the very top if the search engine gods are feeling generous. So why are we advocates for income investments? Why dedicate an entire podcast to it? Surely there can only be so much to cover. Well, income investments can come with several advantages that a lot of us find pretty appealing. First and most obviously, they can pay income to you on a regular basis, typically each month or each quarter. You can then harness the power of compounding interest by using that income to make more investments. Or you can use it to supplement or even replace your regular income. Imagine earning an extra $200 or $2,000 per month of passive income that's generated by your portfolio. You could use it to offset some of your daily expenses like your phone or your grocery bills. Or perhaps it might grow to exceed your expenses altogether. And if that was the case, then you would have achieved a state called financial freedom. Second, a lot of income investments can also appreciate in value. They don't just produce cash flow. Therefore, you can gain the best of both circumstances. You can get paid every 30 days from your dividends, and you can sell for a profit if the investment goes up in price. Third, there are countless income investments. That enables us to diversify across countries, economies, industries, and businesses. 
it's quite possible to own a hundred different investments that all produce steady streams of revenue. And that's why I probably will continue this podcast for the rest of my life. I just can't see how I'd ever run out of subject matter. And finally, a lot of these investments are publicly traded and can be purchased with just a few hundred dollars. Later on, we're going to discuss a couple with minimum investment amounts of $1,000 and $5,000 respectively. But before we get into our conversation, let's just address a question from one of our listeners. Remember, if you have something on your mind, please feel free to let me know at alexasadi.net slash podcast. Your question or your comment can be about anything at all, and it does not have to relate to our current topic. In fact, I really do encourage you to ask your question because I've noticed that a lot of people have pretty similar queries. So if you're thinking it, then there probably are others who are too. So today's question comes from Tusime, who is in Uganda. He highlighted a comment that I'd made the other week where I noticed that we not only have listeners in the US and Canada, but also internationally. For example, I'd realized that a lot of the people who were tuning in were tuning in from Israel. So with that in mind, Tusime had asked if I can start covering some investments that can pay income, which are available in the Middle East and Africa. Tusime, first of all, thank you for your question. I'm actually starting to study up on the subject, so I'm hoping to be able to add some content for international listeners. I just want to make sure that I know what I'm talking about before I start recording episodes about it, so I'm going to need some time. I'm also aware that there are quite a few people who are listening from the UK, and there are plenty of income investments to be made there too. But right now, the majority of listeners are Americans and Canadians, so I don't want to get too far from what's in demand. I'm still trying to balance it all out. So for now, my answer is that I'm learning about investment opportunities in the Middle East and Africa, which can potentially make income payments to investors. Once I've got a good grasp, I'll then figure out how to distribute the content so that it's useful for everyone. For example, I might start to record an extra episode each month, which is dedicated to international listeners. So thanks very much for your question, Tusume, and I appreciate you listening. And also, I hope I didn't get your name wrong when I'm trying to pronounce it. Okay, so let's recap our prior episodes about investment funds. We started the segment about a month ago. We established that a fund is a business that pools money from a group of investors, sometimes a few, sometimes a few hundred, and sometimes many thousands of them and it uses their money to make investments into different securities. Depending on the fund, it might buy stocks or bonds or real estate, or practically any other asset that you can think of. We even found one that trades in cryptocurrencies, called Crypto20. Each fund will usually have a specific mandate or objective, such as generating income for their shareholders or unit holders. The fund will also have a manager who is responsible for running the firm, That manager will typically charge a fee, which is equivalent to a percentage of the assets under the fund's management, or AUM. It might also earn performance bonuses. One of the perks of investing in a fund is that you can gain exposure to sectors that you may not want to or know how to participate in directly. For instance, if you wanted access to mortgage loans, but don't have the time or the capital or the expertise to make a mortgage loan yourself, then you might invest in a mortgage fund, and that fund would likely own lots of different mortgages, so you'd also gain some diversity as well. Investment funds can come in various structures. They're usually corporations or trusts or limited partnerships. In our 25th episode, we talked about a small but very important detail that everyone should be aware of, and that detail is called classes or series. 
We discuss the differences between Class A and Class B shares and why all of that matters. And last week, we looked at the mechanisms behind how investors and funds can earn a profit. We saw that the fund manager will usually distribute income to shareholders based on the following criteria. How much revenue the fund earned, how high the fund's expenses are, whether there are any debts to be repaid, whether it should retain any cash just in case some investors want their money back, and whether making a dividend payment is administratively feasible. Therefore, investment funds that focus on producing income will typically own assets like rental real estate, cash-flowing resource and energy holdings, dividend stocks, mortgages, and other credit instruments. It's rare for an income fund to own speculative assets like raw land or small-cap stocks because they don't generate revenue. As well, investors can sell their shares or their units in the fund for a capital gain. We discussed a new term called the net asset value, or NAV, and that's the value of the fund, which is based on a calculation of its assets minus its liabilities. So with all that said, let's get to the heart of today's show, which is mortgage funds. A mortgage fund is a fund that invests in various mortgage loans. Depending on the size, they might own anywhere between a few to a few million of them. As we know, mortgage loans are debts that are secured against real estate. In most cases, they require the borrower to make monthly payments to service the interest. They can also turn a profit by charging origination fees and late payment penalties. And lastly, mortgage loans can be sold, so there is also the potential to earn a capital gain if it's sold for a higher price. So there are a few different profit centers. Mortgages can be reliable assets that provide a steady stream of monthly revenue. And for that reason, mortgage funds often attract income-oriented investors like you and me. A fund will generally invest in mortgages in one of two ways. It will either lend the money to borrowers directly, or it'll buy mortgage-backed debts that trade on the market. From what I've seen, it's more common for loans to be originated by smaller funds. A massive fund that owns tens of thousands of mortgages may not be able to research every borrower individually. Rather, it'll buy large batches of mortgage loans that have already been issued based on factors like their credit ratings. For instance, it might spend $100 million on 300 mortgages, with a double-A credit rating from the ratings agency Standard & Poor's. Instead of hiring loan officers to interview applicants, the fund trusts credit rating agencies to make a reasonable assessment of the risks of those debts. The mortgages were probably originated by banks, which then sold them back into the debt markets. The fund can then sit on those loans that it purchased and earn income from them, or it can try to sell them back in the debt markets for a higher price. From one perspective, funds like these are really just professional paper pushers. Their managers sit at desks and they buy and they sell big stacks of mortgage loans. They aren't lending money to anyone. Rather, they're just purchasing loans that were already made by someone else. So on their surface, they don't really appear to do much beyond making money for their shareholders. But mortgage funds are actually pretty important to both the real estate markets and the broader economy. Since lenders like banks can sell debts to buyers like investment funds, they then have a tool that they can use to manage liquidity risk. You'll remember that we discussed this back in episodes 14 and 15. If a lender wants to dispose of a loan agreement and get its money back, it can do so in the debt markets. 
Therefore, lenders are willing to issue more loans, and that makes credit more widely available, thus allowing more people and more businesses to borrow more money. As you'll recall from episode 16, the availability of credit is one of the most important elements of our economy. As such, these kinds of investment funds serve a crucial purpose. They add liquidity to the credit markets. One example of a mortgage fund like this is the U.S. Mortgage Fund, which is offered by BlackRock. It's a $235 million fund that invests mostly in residential mortgages that are guaranteed by U.S. government agencies like the Federal National Mortgage Association, also called Fannie Mae, and the Government National Mortgage Association, or Ginnie Mae. You might recall the name Fannie Mae, which together with another agency, Freddie Mac, required a $100 billion bailout from the U.S. government during the Great Recession of 2008. But even with that said, the U.S. Mortgage Fund is actually a relatively low-risk investment. Most of its loans have a AAA rating and have maturity dates of between 3 and 10 years. It's been around since 2009 and has produced a total return of 89%. So if you had invested back then, you would have almost doubled your money today. The fund also pays a fairly stable monthly distribution to investors. Right now, it's got a yield of around 3.5% per year. That's the rate of income that it's paying over and above any capital gains that could be earned. The U.S. Mortgage Fund is divided into three classes of shares. Class A shares come with an initial sales charge, whereas Class B shares have a deferred sales charge. These are basically commissions that the investor pays. We're going to talk more about them in a later episode. Class B shares have the opposite features. They don't have an initial sales charge, but they do have a deferred sales charge. And the minimum investment for either class of shares is $1,000, and you can buy them through a brokerage account. The third class of shares is called institutional shares. These are sold to investors like large endowments, governments, banks, and pension funds. They don't come with any fees, so they've performed a bit better than the A and B classes. From what I can tell by reading the prospectus, the U.S. Mortgage Fund employs a combination of active trading of mortgage loans and earning income from them, and it also buys and sells mortgage derivatives. On the other hand, funds that lend money directly to borrowers will either employ loan officers or they'll rely on mortgage brokers to perform the due diligence. As you know, the fund should have a specific mandate so brokers will know what kinds of deals to send them. For instance, if a fund focuses on short-term second mortgages, a broker probably would not refer a client who needs a third mortgage for 10 years. One example of a direct lender is a fund called Capital Direct Income Trust. They're based in Vancouver, where I live, but I don't know them personally. I actually thought they were from Toronto until I started to research them. So Capital Direct Income Trust is a $180 million fund. It finances residential mortgages, mainly in British Columbia and Ontario. Basically, they give home equity loans, presumably to borrowers who may not qualify with a bank. The bulk of its portfolio is in second mortgages, closely followed by first mortgages, and it has a sprinkling of third mortgages too. Right now, investors are earning around 7% on their money, with income payments being made quarterly. Now, Capital Direct Income Trust has an interesting model. One of their affiliate companies is called Capital Direct Lending Corp, which is a mortgage brokerage. So basically, you can apply for a loan through their mortgage brokerage, and if you qualify, 
your loan will be provided by Capital Direct Income Trust, which is their investment fund. Like the U.S. Mortgage Fund, Capital Direct Income Trust also has three classes of units, Class A, B, and C. They're each entitled to a different portion of the net income that's earned by the fund, and they're subject to different management fees. The minimum investment is $5,000. The U.S. Mortgage Fund and Capital Direct represent three major components of the credit business. First, loan applicants are often assessed by loan officers or brokers like Capital Direct Lending Corp. Second, the loans are made by lenders like Capital Direct Income Trust. And third, Capital Direct could sell its loans, thus retrieving its capital, to investors like the U.S. Mortgage Fund. So you can see how they all tie in together. Now, I'm not going to dive too deeply into researching mortgage funds here. All of that was covered between episodes 10 through 25. You already understand the risks and the benefits of both investment funds and mortgage loans. Now, there are thousands of mortgage funds out there, both in the form of loan buyers and as direct lenders. But regardless of which ones you might be considering, there are four basic questions to ask as part of your due diligence. First, what is the average loan-to-value ratio of the portfolio? As I'd mentioned before, it can get riskier as you cross over into 80% and beyond. There's nothing wrong with having a couple of deals with a higher LTV, but if the entire portfolio is up there, then you should make sure that you're being compensated for that risk by earning a higher return. Second, how diverse is the fund's loan portfolio? I know of a fund that allocated something like 50% of its assets into two loans, and when those two borrowers ran into financial difficulty, it caused the fund to cut its distributions down to less than 1% per year. So you got to make sure it's somewhat diverse. Third, when are the loans supposed to be repaid? In general, longer-term loans come with more risk because there's more room for the borrower's financial position to change. As well, it's more susceptible to the hazards that can come from interest rate hikes. I would say that five years and beyond starts adding significant risk. And fourth, what is the nature of the loans being made? Are they for construction projects? Are they mezzanine financing for commercial real estate? Are they personal loans that are secured against property? And how appropriate are those loans in today's market? For instance, if the American economy is experiencing a downturn, then U.S. commercial real estate might decrease in value, while multifamily properties could appreciate. Therefore, commercial real estate might be riskier than it would be under normal market conditions. So you might want to avoid mortgages that are heavily invested in commercial real estate. It's important to view these factors together, not in isolation. As an example, a lot of the U.S. mortgage fund's loans are longer term, but they're mostly first mortgages that are supported by U.S. government agencies. So it'd be wrong to view this as a high-risk investment solely because of the average maturity date. It's better to take a holistic view. So that about wraps it up for today, but there's still more that I want to discuss about mortgage funds. So we're going to spend next week's episode covering the U.S. government agencies called Fannie Mae, Ginny Mae, and Freddie Mac. And that's going to cause us to revisit our discussion on the 2008 Great Recession, which, by the way, it's now the 10th anniversary since then, and we'll see the effects that they have on American mortgage funds. We'll also explore a similar topic within Canada, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, or CMHC. You'll notice that most, if not all, of the mortgage funds that are issued by banks and major fund managers invest heavily in government-backed mortgages. For example, 
the PH&N Short-Term Bond and Mortgage Fund, which manages about $6.5 billion, has a good 20% of its money in these kinds of assets. So it's important to learn about the government's role in the mortgage business. Until next week, I'd be grateful if you told a friend about this podcast, maybe share an episode on your Facebook page, or send the link over to a buddy by a text message. We're almost at 10,000 listens, so it'd be amazing to reach that milestone in September. As always, thanks for your support, and I'll talk to you on next Wednesday. We'll be right back. 